Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you. Before we get started, I have a confession that I have to make. Thankfully, it's not that kind of confession, so that's good. Um, But a confession nonetheless, a serious confession, that at times in my Christian walk, I've had a, a tendency to to look at my Christianity in a wrong way as something that I do rather than who I am. I can get stuck in a kind of routine where, well, it's Sunday, so I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to Sunday school because that's what I do on Sunday. And then after Sunday school, I'm going to go to church because that's what I do. And the next day I'm going to get up and, oh, it's time to do my Bible reading. It's time for prayer. Uh, it's Wednesday, so I, I'd better go to church, right? Because it's Bible study. You just kind of get stuck in this routine, and Christianity is something that we do rather than who we are. Has anybody else ever had that problem? Can anybody else relate? Okay, good. I'm, I'm not alone. Yes, yes, I know you have that problem. I know I'm just playing. <laughs> but that is a, a common problem in Christianity that we can kind of get stuck in this routine, um, and it can just kind of become commonplace for us to, to serve our, our God, not something that we really enjoy. I want you to think back with me. For those of you who are married or have been in a relationship at some point to when you first started dating your spouse and the butterflies you got in your stomach, right? Those feelings of joy and excitement. And when you were gone, oh, Miss Diana, oh, (laughs) when you guys were gone or separated from each other, um, you had this loss, this sense of abandonment, right? Um, Things weren't quite as they should be. And perhaps as time has gone on in your marriage and things progressed, you don't have those same types of feelings, not that same type of excitement and joy. Of course I do, um, but <laughs> for, for some of you, that may not be the case. Um, it is, it's natural to kind of lose that, that spark and that excitement that was there in the beginning, right? We can have that tendency to, to settle in, to get comfortable, to get apathetic in our relationships, Um, and begin to take each other for granted. And that's not a good thing. And we can have that same tendency in our relationship with God. We have that that propensity to be really excited and really on fire and really fervent at the beginning. And then we can kind of just shift into this mode of apathy where you're just doing the same thing over and over again. It's just routine. You show up on Sunday because that's what you're supposed to do. You pick up and read your Bible because that's what you're supposed to do. And that's certainly not where we want to be. God is no doubt a God of truth. And we believe that fully and wholeheartedly that God is truth. And it's vitally important that we carefully examine the scriptures for that truth so that we can correctly divide the word of truth and hold fast to the word of life. That is one of our our primary purposes here as Orchard Hills Bible Church, to correctly know and divide the word of truth. It is truth. However, at times I think that we can do that while neglecting to realize that emotional aspect that we have as Christians. We can do it at an emotional expense, not realizing that, yes, God's word is truth, but it is also a way for him to communicate with us his love and that we should respond in loving fashion to God, not just relegate what we learn and study and teach in the word as truth. Yes, it's truth. God is truth. He is a God of truth, but he is also a God of love. 
And we need to uh, be careful of approaching our, our Christianity ritualistically rather than relationally. Just getting stuck in this routine instead of realizing that God has and desires and longs for a relationship with us. And we should focus upon that relationship. This morning we're going to be in my favorite psalm, which is kind of a hard thing to say, but I think I can say confidently that this is my favorite psalm, Psalm 100. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 100. And if you have your bulletins, you should have a handout. We're going to be talking about how we should lovingly respond to God in these four different ways. We're going to highlight four ways from Psalm 100 that we should lovingly respond to the truth of God's Word. God's Word, again, is true, but we should respond in love. Let's go ahead and open up in prayer and we'll jump into the text. God, we thank you that you are a God of truth, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. God, we plant ourselves fully and wholeheartedly on the truth of your word, and we declare and defend that truth. But God, we pray that you would help us to not lose touch of the relational aspect that we have in our Christian life, that you have redeemed us, you have adopted us, that we are yours, you are our, not only our king, but our savior and our friend. God, help us to try to strike that balance of truth and love, and that we would approach you in a way that honors you, a way that, um, that would be in accordance with, with your word and how it is that you've called us to respond to you. God, I pray that as we open up your word, open up your text, that you would enlighten us, that you would uh, draw us closer to you, not just in knowledge, but relationally as well. God, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. All right, once again, we're going to be in Psalm 100. It's a, a rather short psalm, only five verses. Um, but in these short five verses, we find seven imperatives, seven commands in just five verses. And these commands are instructive to us. This book, while it is poetic, it is also instructive. And so we need to look at it as such, not merely as poetic, but it gives us instructions. And in this psalm, specifically in how we are to respond to God, again, four ways in which we should lovingly respond to God. Starting off in verse one, says right off the bat, to shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Shout joyfully. That is an imperative. That is a command that God has given to us, that we are to shout joyfully. The ESV or the King James will say to make a joyful noise to the Lord. And elsewhere in Scripture, this same phrase is translated as jubilant shouting, to sound the alarm, to shout in triumph, to joyfully cry out, to give a battle cry, or to raise a war cry to the Lord. That is strong, powerful language in how we are to respond to God, to give a war cry, a battle cry, to shout jubilantly to the Lord. Shout with joy to the Lord, all the earth. When I read this, I think of Judges 7, where um, the, the people, they shout, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, right? And it's a, a war cry, a battle cry, a, a joyful shout. They're going in, they're excited, they're pumped. A, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Or when Jesus comes in, the at his triumphal entry, right, on Palm Sunday, and people are shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. 
Blessed be the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a shout for joy, a battle cry, so to speak. Hosanna. They're, they're thinking, this guy's going to usher in the kingdom right now. We are ready. We're here. And we're shouting joyfully. This is how we're to respond to God. This is how we respond to our Lord. Again, not just showing up on Sunday, not just opening up our Bible out of routine, but to shout joyfully, to respond in love to God. God demands our praise and our honor. He is worthy of our praise and our honor. He calls us to shout joyfully before him. And notice that this command, this imperative, it's not just to the Jews. It's not just to the believers, to that special group, that chosen people of God. But it says to shout joyfully, joyfully to the Lord all the earth. This is for, for everybody. Everybody is to shout to the Lord because he is worthy of our praise. In Luke 19, 19, 10, we're told that if we don't cry out, the very stones, the rocks themselves are going to cry out to shout to God. Why? Because God is worthy of praise. And he's not going to sit there in silence when he deserves to be honored. He deserves to be magnified and glorified. The very rocks would cry out. And if that were to happen, that would be such a shame for us, right? That would be uh, a terrible thing for his people, for his church to allow rocks to cry out in our stead. We ourselves are to shout joyfully to the Lord. Once again, he is absolutely worthy, isn't he? Not just from those who are his, not just from Israel in this text, not just from our perspective as redeemed believers, but he is creator of all. He is sustainer of all things. He is holding the world together by the might of his power. He is actively holding us together. He deserves all praise, all worship. He deserves every shout of praise, every shout of joy. He gives life and breath to all things. It is in him that we live, in him that we move, in him that we have our being. And he causes his rain to fall, not just on the just, but on the unjust as well, right? He causes his sun to shine, not just on the righteous, but on the unrighteous. And if Jesus is king, he is king of all. And his, his glory is over all. He is deserving of praise and worship from all. That is why he commands that we shout joyfully all the earth, not just a limited group of people. And yet, we don't see that happening, do we? We see people who, as we talked just a little while ago in our Sunday school, are depraved. We are fallen in our natural state. By nature, we are children of wrath. We are enemies of God in rebellion against Him. But we have to recognize that our rebellion against Him in no way reflects upon His worthiness as King. That it rather just highlights man's depravity. It highlights the fact that man, even though God is absolutely worthy of our honor and our praise, we neglect to ascribe that praise and that honor to Him that He deserves. Rather, we ascribe praise and honor to ourselves, don't we? To our, our families or to our jobs. It is misplaced worship, but that doesn't negate the fact that God is absolutely worthy of worship. Now, this is a, a message I spoke a while ago, and so I pulled out my, my old notes this morning, and I was reading over them, and uh, at this point before, I had quoted from Romans 14, 11, which says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And I thought about it for a second, and I'm kind of entering dangerous territory because I haven't given this too much thought or study. But um, I don't believe that that is speaking to, to everybody, to believers and unbelievers alike. I don't believe that unbelievers will one day bow the knee to God in, in that way that they will ascribe praise and honor to Him. If you look at the context from Romans 14, it talks about um, how they, they show contempt to their brother and how that's manifested. Um, and that's actually a quote from, from Isaiah 45, 23, that, which says that to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. And he shall say, surely in the Lord, I have righteousness and strength. Well, an unbeliever wouldn't be able to declare that, right? That he has righteousness in the Lord, that he has strength in the Lord. So rather, I think that that's a, a reference to different brothers amongst uh, the redeemed within different nationalities, different groups of people. But I think that even those who go to the grave denying Christ, they will still deny Christ in eternity. They're not going to have any desire to, to bow the knee, to ascribe praise, to shout joyfully before the Lord just because they realize that there is a God. One day, everybody will know that there is a God. One day, everybody will know Jesus is king and that he reigns and that he is a one creator. There's no such thing as evolution. There's no big bang, no such thing as these other false gods or idols, that there is one God. But that isn't going to drive them to their knees to worship. That isn't going to make them bow down and honor the king. They will be just as lost and just as depraved in that day as they are today. And unless God takes and changes and redeems and regenerates, gives them a new life and a new heart so that they will have a desire to worship him, nobody will worship him even in eternity unless they have been drawn to the Lord to do so. We must be regenerated to be able to really shout joyfully before the Lord. However, once again, that doesn't negate the responsibility that we all have to shout joyfully to the Lord. Redeemed and unredeemed alike, we have that responsibility to recognize God is king, God is righteous, God is perfect, and he deserves all of our praise and all of our worship. 1 Timothy 4.10 says that we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And that's a, a rather difficult passage to, to take into exegete and to, to pull out and to understand. But what we can know from that is that Jesus is our Savior, especially for those who have been redeemed. And so you and I who know Christ, who are in Christ, who have been bought by his blood, we have experienced that redemption. And we have experienced that salvation. And so you and I have an, an obligation, I would say, to stand as an example of praise to our King, to let the world know that He is in fact worthy. He is in fact honorable, right? He is worthy of our praise and our worship. He is glorious. And you and I should be at the, at the front of the line showing the world what it means to worship such a King. We live in a, a culture and a society that really idolizes professionals, right? We want somebody who is a professional in one certain area who has a specialty. Look at the, the medical field. You don't just want to go to any doctor, right? If you have something wrong, um, you're congested or something, you want to go to an ear, nose, and throat doctor, right? Is that right? Ear, nose, and throat. Um, 
or if you have something wrong with your eyes, you don't want to go to a cardiologist, you want to go to an eye doctor. If you have something wrong with your heart, you don't want to go to an eye doctor, you want to go to a cardiologist, right? You want to be uh, in the presence of a, a specialized professional. Well, once again, you and I as believers in Christ, we should be the specialized professionals when it comes to obeying this command, to obeying this instruction, to shout joyfully to the Lord so that all the earth can look and they can see and they can recognize that they themselves have been called to this same instruction. They themselves have this same requirement and obligation to bow down and to recognize that Jesus is king. 1 Peter 3.15, one of my favorite verses, says to set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. To realize that yes, he is king and to set him apart. To give him in your own heart that, that place of preeminence. And then to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a, a reason for the hope that is within you. If we truly have this hope within us, then that should resonate with other people, right? They should see that hope that is within us. If people are asking us about the hope that is within us, then we should be able to point them back to Christ, who we've already set apart as Lord in our life. Hopefully, we are living our lives in such a way that we are shouting joyfully to the Lord as we are commanded here in Psalm 100 so that people are asking us about the hope that is within us. We should be at the front lines of honoring our King, of shouting praises to our King. And yet, churches oftentimes are kind of glum, right? They're kind of dull and boring. And Jerry's over here saying amen. Amen. <laughs> uh, that's not how it should be, right? The world knows how to party so much better than the church. And that's a shame to us, isn't it? That the world can go out and they can find something silly and insignificant. And they can throw a party about that. They can get excited about that. Uh, last night, we went to a watch party for the jazz at the, the Vivint Arena in Salt Lake. And uh, everybody's getting excited about 10 guys on a floor bouncing around a ball trying to throw it in a hoop, Right? Uh, grown men, mind you. Uh, and it wasn't even there. This was happening in LA. We were just watching it on a, a TV screen. And we had thousands of people there to, to watch a TV screen together of these grown men bouncing a ball trying to get it in a hoop. Um, and they got excited about that and they threw a party about it. And, and it was fun. It was a good party. But as Christians, we don't really throw that, that kind of party. We don't get excited about Jesus like the world gets excited about sweaty men dribbling a ball, right? And, and that is to our shame. That's, that's not okay. I, I was sitting there last night and I was thinking um, all these, these thousands of people, uh, I don't know how many people were there, but I was wondering by comparison in my, once again, fallen mind um, that is prone to gambling, I was wondering, let's see over under on if there are more people here uh, watching these men play basketball on TV screen than there will be in a Christian church in Utah tomorrow worshiping God, shouting praises to the Lord. There were a lot of people there, and we don't have a lot of people in our Christian churches in Utah. Um, I, I would hope that there would be more people in Christian churches this morning, but I don't know. Uh, the very fact that that thought even entered my mind, once again, is, is sad. Um, we should be able to, to shout the praises of our King, to honor our King, to party uh, much better than the world is. Um, and so... To change that, this afternoon, we're all going to go to Rex's house, and we're going to have a big party. Um, all right, he's throwing up his fist. So 
cancel your lunch plans. We, we got it covered. Um, we, have, we have a king who is worthy of our praise. We have a king who is worthy of shouting to, of singing to. We have a king who is absolutely sovereign, who is 100% true, who is omniscient, omnipresent, who is omnipotent. We have a king who is eternal, without beginning, without end, a king who is loving and gracious and has taken and redeemed a fallen humanity, who has offered us hope and salvation and forgiveness and mercy, and he is worthy of our praise. We ought to be able to shout easily to the Lord of glory. I want to read to you Ephesians four seventeen through 24. Ephesians four seventeen through 24 says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. There should be a marked distinction between our former life and our new life that is in Christ. We should be marked by holiness and righteousness and truth. We should be marked by our praise of the living God. And later on in Ephesians 5, 8, it says, do not be drunk with wine for that is just dissipation, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are to be filled and controlled and guided by the Holy Spirit of truth. And that should have a, a marked difference in our response among the world. We should be able to praise, to shout joyfully before the Lord as Christians who have experienced his salvation, his redemption. When I think of examples from the Bible of somebody who shouts joyfully to the Lord, I can't think of anybody who's a better example than King David. King David, who was dancing in the streets, right? He took off his clothes and he said, you know what, I'll, I'll become even crazier than this. I'll become more undignified than this for my king because I'm honoring him. I'm shouting praise to my king, to my Lord. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I'm going to sing to my king. King David, who wrote half of the 150 Psalms, who sat down and, and penciled out these songs that he would sing, these songs that became uh, a hymn book for the nation of Israel. King David shouted praise to the Lord. And think about for a minute that he was praising God as creator, which is good and right, and we should do ourselves. He was praising God as redeemer who, who came and took and delivered up Israel out of the hands of Egypt. And he knew God as a savior in a, a shadowy sense, in the sense that they were able to take these, these sacrifices and they were able to offer them as a temporary covering for their sin. But David didn't know Jesus as king in the way that we do. David didn't know and understand and experience the fact that Jesus came and he died on a cross fulfilling all those shadows, all those types and pictures that were pointing forward to him. Hebrews 9 says that the blood of goats and bulls, that's insufficient to cover our, our sin. That's insufficient to cover our need before Christ. 
But Jesus, he is the perfect fulfillment. He is the, the essence and the substance of all these things that were just a picture, just a type, just a shadow that were pointing to Jesus. And yet David was able to stand up and he was able to shout joyfully to, to the God who he was looking forward to salvation from, who he was looking forward to as a, a Messiah and a mediator. But we have the, the assurance that Jesus is our king. He has already, past tense, died for us. He's laid down his life for us. How much more ought you and I to shout joyfully to that God, to that king? Shout joyfully all the earth. The second thing that we ought to do in in loving response to God is to serve with gladness. We ought to, to shout joyfully. We ought to serve the Lord with gladness. This is our purpose as believers. We are created in Christ to to serve. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That is why he has made us, for his honor, for his praise. Again, like we learned this morning in Ephesians 1.6, Ephesians 1.12, that all things are for his honor and glory. And he has created us, his workmanship, for that same purpose so that we are able to serve. And I just want to to ask each one of you, how eager, how willing are you to serve? Is that something that gets you excited? Does that get your blood flowing? Does that get you pumped to be able to serve? Not just to serve God, but to serve others. Because through serving others, we're serving God, of course, right? But um, I've got to tell you, this church is one of the most serving churches, the, the most serving church that I've ever been a part of ever I've been to ever seen or heard of this is a great serving church however just like most other churches it is driven by uh, a few people who really serve they they go all out and they are great servants and there are others who don't serve quite as much some of two who don't serve at all um Jeremy just talked last week about our our desire, our push to allow opportunities for people to serve, the, the myriad of options and ways in which you can be a part of and you can serve and really pour into this church. So I just want to ask, are, are you eager to serve around the church, to, to clean toilets, to, to serve in the nursery? It's not always fun to deal with crying, screaming kids, maybe for some of you, but not for me, right? Um, <laughs> It's not always fun to serve on the security team, to be sitting out all alone in the foyer while everybody else is in here partaking of the service. But are you doing it with, with eagerness? What about in your, your jobs? Are you serving the Lord with, with eagerness? Even in the difficult times, even when you have that report to write, you don't really want to write. Somebody asks you to fill a shift that you don't want to, sh- to, to fill. Um, when you have that one thing, that one task at work that you just don't like to do, nobody likes to do. Are you doing that, serving the Lord with gladness? Uh, Looking to to Colossians 3.17 that says, in whatever you do, do it wholeheartedly in all of your work as unto the Lord and not unto man. Because I know I'm not always there. I'm not always serving the Lord in gladness, but rather I'm grudgingly going into work, right? Not doing all things without arguing and complaining, not doing things without gossiping as I should. We should be serving the Lord with gladness in the church, in our work, in our homes. That's probably the most difficult place to serve the Lord with gladness with those that you are are with the most. And they they know you the best and you rub shoulders with them and 
you know all the buttons to push and they know all your buttons, right? Are you serving the Lord when you're doing the dishes, when you're mowing the lawn, when you're doing those tedious tasks that you just don't really like to do? I think that's when it's probably most difficult to, to serve with gladness. I think that's the, the key with gladness. Um, it's not just serving outwardly, right? Saul told Samuel, or Samuel told Saul that the Lord requires, um, or the Lord desires obedience more than sacrifice. He looks at obedience as better than sacrifice. So it's not about the action, but rather it's about the attitude with which we serve. We are to serve the Lord with gladness. Second Corinthians 9, God says that he loves a cheerful giver, a joyful giver. And of course, that's speaking in, in financial terms, but I think we can take and apply that same principle that when we are giving to the Lord, even of our service, we should be doing so with gladness. God loves a cheerful, joyful giver. And we have to recognize and realize that God doesn't need our service, does he? He's not in heaven saying, well, I wish that so-and-so would, would serve me because I'm, I'm really hurting here without them. God in no way needs anything from us. He doesn't need our service, but he has given us the, the opportunity to serve him. We should count it a privilege to serve the almighty God of the universe. We get that privilege to, to serve our king. I think of, of Mary in the Gospels and how she washed the feet of Jesus. Remember that? With her, her hair and this perfume that cost so much and people were judging her and, and she was just thrilled and excited to serve her king. She knew that, that this was God in the flesh and she was preparing him for her burial. Even if she didn't realize that, she was getting him ready for his death and burial. And the Gospels tell us that whenever the Gospel is preached, that will be preached along with it. This woman is written down in, in history books for all time because of her service to the Lord with gladness. We should, look to, uh, we should look to her as an example for sure that we should serve the Lord as she has served the Lord. In the latter part of Psalm 100 verse 2, uh, we see a, a reiteration of verse 1. Verse 1 says, To shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. And then it says once again, Come before Him with joyful singing. And once again, we have to recognize that, yes, Hebrew, in Hebrew, uh, repetition is poetic, but it also highlights importance. This is an important thought, an important aspect that the psalmist wants us to realize that we are to sing to the Lord. We are to shout joyfully before the Lord. He is 100% worthy of all praise and all honor. We are to sing before Him. And so, once again, we need to ask ourselves, are we singing, are we shouting to the Lord out of the depths of our heart, singing to the Lord with joy in our heart? Are we serving the Lord with gladness? We should do these things because of what verse 3 says, because of our, our third point in our outline that we need to know that the Lord Himself, He is God. Verse 3, Know that the Lord Himself, He is God. This is absolutely exclusive. This is where we have to stand on that truth that we were talking about before, right? Not to the exclusion of our emotional response, but we have to love Him and serve Him uh, knowing that He and He alone is a God of truth. 
all throughout Isaiah, in Isaiah 43, 10, and 11, God says uh, strongly, without mincing his words, before me there was no God formed, neither will there be after me. I, even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. There's only one God, and his name is Yahweh. Uh, just a, a few verses later, in chapter 44, verses 6 through 8, he says, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. God and God alone is the Lord. In fact, he goes on in verse 8 and he says that he knows of no other God, which is a great verse to share with your, your LDS friends because um, there are in LDS theology more than one God, aren't there? But God says very clearly in Isaiah 44, 8, that he knows of no other God. There is no God besides him. He says, if anybody wants to make that claim, you can stand up. You can tell me how it all went down. You can recount it to me in order. But that didn't happen, so sit down and be quiet, more or less, right? There is only one God and one God alone. And we are to know that the Lord himself, he is God. And we can do this because of what we learn in Romans 1, that God has told us what may be known about God. What may be known about God is plain to us because God has made it plain to us. For since the beginning of the world, his, uh, we have been made aware of his uh, eternal attributes, his divine nature, because of what has been made. We can look at creation. We can know, we can see there is a creator, and we are going to be held accountable and responsible for that. We know internally that there is a God, every one of us, even if we, if uh, an atheist denies the fact that they know there is God. Scripture tells us what may be known about God is plain to us. And so we need to take Scripture at its word, stand on that truth, and say everybody knows that there is a God. Many are in denial, but we need to submit that. Know that the Lord himself, he is God. Later on in Romans 1, it says that they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever praised. It says that they have exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God and exchanged it for images that represent birds and animals and mammals and reptiles, all these silly things rather than God. Mark was talking about taking a, a piece of wood, cutting it in half, use it half to warm yourself and half to worship as an idol. How utterly foolish is that? Um, because we have, again, in our, ourselves this understanding that there is a God and it's not a piece of wood, Right? His name is Yahweh. He is the God of the universe, the one true God who shares his glory with nobody else. One true God who knows of no other God who has called us here to know that he himself, he is God. That fact that he says he himself is God. He doesn't get his godness, his deity from anybody else. Nobody taught him how to be God. He didn't learn anything from somebody else. Nobody gives him counsel or advice, but he is completely self-existent, self-sufficient. Four times throughout this one chapter, these five verses, we see his, his covenant name, Yahweh, that personal name that he has, that he is the self-existent one. Nobody made him. He is completely autonomous. He has a saity. He has life within himself. Nobody has given it to him. He is the great I am that we saw back in Exodus chapter 3. He is the, the one who, the I am who became incarnate. One of my favorite passages 
in the Gospels is where Jesus, on the night he was betrayed that we just remembered, right? He's standing in the Garden of Gethsemane and they come and they look for him and they say, hey, uh, where, where's Jesus? As if they didn't already know, right? Uh, who, who's Jesus? And he steps up and he says, I am. And they fall back. They literally physically fall back and then they still have the audacity to get up and to arrest him, which is beyond my understanding. But it was because of God's perfect will, right? He had that in mind. But he is the great I am, the self-existent one who doesn't get his power, his glory, his honor, anything else from anybody. He himself is the Lord. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. God is completely autonomous. You and I are not. We are 100% reliant and dependent upon God. We have nothing in and of ourselves to offer. We have to realize that we are poor and lowly, right? Um, blessed is the poor in spirit, those who have a, a correct understanding of their absolute need for God. We have to realize that there's no such thing as a, a self-made man, no such thing as a righteous man, nobody who can achieve to the standard that God has put before them. We are his. He has made us, and we have not made ourselves. This should certainly impact us with a sense of accountability and responsibility that we belong to God's, and we are his, and we need to honor him as his. However, this should also give us a, a sense of, of purpose and security, that we are his. We, we belong to the king. He has taken and adopted us as his own, and we are in him. We talked about this again this morning, that we are sealed in Christ. Nobody can mess with that. Nobody can take us out of the hand of Christ, out of the hand of the Almighty. We are his and not our own. We belong to him. It goes on in the last part of verse 3. It says um, that we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. What a beautiful thought that we belong to him. We are his sheep. We, we need to recognize and know, once again, this, this difference between knowing something intellectually, this is truth, right? Versus knowing something experientially or emotionally. My kids know that, that I'm daddy, right? Um, just the other day, I was introducing myself to somebody here when we were doing the, the music thing. And I said, hey, I'm Tyler. And Hudson said, no, that's dad. Um, so they know intellectually I'm dad, but I want them to know emotionally that that means that I'm going to be there for them, right? That I'm going to love them unconditionally, even when they mess up hardcore and they just make an utter wreck of things, even when uh, life is, is rough and, and difficult, when they are in trouble, when they need guidance, when they, uh, they need support, when they have questions, when they just want to hang out and play, that, that dad is there for them and that experiential knowledge is, is different from just an intellectual knowledge. We ought to know both intellectually and experientially that, that we are his sheep, that he is our shepherd, that we belong to him. That should be um, a, a comfort and a support to us. Uh, another one of my favorite verses, Romans 8.15 says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We can cry out to our God. We can call him Abba, 
Father. What a trip. That is something that should just cause us to pause and to shout joyfully to the Lord, right? That we can call to the, the creator of all things and we can call him our Father. We are his sheep. We are the sheep of his field. He is our good and our loving shepherd who will leave the 99 to come after the one because we have that personal, intimate, experiential relationship with him. Not just a, a wooden understanding of the fact that, yes, God is truth, but God is true and he became a man and he loved me and he laid down his life for me. He wants a, a relationship with me. He has adopted me and I can call him daddy. I can call him Abba, father. And that should cause us to, uh, looking down to, to verse 4, this is the fourth way that we should respond lovingly to God, that we are to enter his gates with thanksgiving, to enter his courts with praise, to give thanks to him, and to bless his name. Once again, we have to realize this was written to the Jewish people, right? Uh, so this was written uh, as a call to enter into Jerusalem. That's what God's gate is. It's talking about entering Jerusalem, God's gate with thanksgiving, to enter his holy temple. His courts are a reference to his holy temple. So enter his gates, enter Jerusalem with thanksgiving, enter his holy temple with praise, and offer thanksgiving and sacrifices. Once again, as, as New Testament believers, we should be able to offer praise and adoration all the more uh, without having to go to Jerusalem, without having to enter into a temple, because we have a high priest who has taken and he has torn that veil from top to bottom. He has made himself uh, our mediator. He is our high priest, our mediator. We don't have a, a need for uh, a human to go into the temple year after year, offer sacrifices for himself and then for us. No, we have a great high priest who offered a sacrifice once for all so that we can enter into his temple, into his courts, into his praise through prayer. We can go to him without having to get on a plane and go to Jerusalem. We can enter into relationship and communion with God by merely praying, not even out loud, just within our hearts. And we have a high priest who is able to understand and mediate for us, we can enter his presence through prayer. And this should be done uh, intentionally, not flippantly, which I think we have that, that tendency to do as well because we don't have to get up and go to the temple and, and make a day of it. We, we neglect this great privilege, this great resource that we have in prayer to enter his gates to enter his courts the courts of the almighty all high almighty holy godly universe we can do so by merely praying we need to do this with intention with purpose realizing that he is to be the focus and not we ourselves we have really given in to this consumer mentality that I just want to buy more and more and more. It's all about me. It's all about me. Even within the church, we have a consumer mentality. But uh, we are called here to enter his gates. How? With thanksgiving, realizing that he is the one who has given us all that we have. We are to enter his courts with praise, putting the focus on him rather than ourselves. We are to give thanks to him. We are to bless his name to bless the Lord. That is what we are called to do as, as his people. I want you to, to listen to how David, once again, our, our example of the man who can shout praises to the Lord like no other, right? 
Listen to how David blesses the Lord. He says, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. Blessed be the Lord. Because he has heard the voice of my supplication, blessed be the Lord. For he has made marvelous his loving kindness to me. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. As for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord. We ought to bless the Lord as David has blessed the Lord. Once again, that is what we are created for. We are created to shout joyfully before the Lord. We are created to serve the Lord with gladness, that we may enter his courts with thanksgiving enter his gates with praise, that we may bless the Lord. And why ought we to do this? It's all summed up in verse 5 that Jerry read for us earlier. We are to bless the Lord, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. This whole psalm is wrapped up in, in worship and how we are to worship our God, how we are to lovingly respond to our God. Mark 12.30 says that we are to love the Lord with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And that relates directly with Psalm 100, that we are to shout joyfully to the Lord with our mouth, that we are um, to, to do so joyfully with our heart, right? It's not about the action, it's about the attitude with which we approach God. We are to serve the Lord, talking about our hands and our feet and the strength to love the Lord with all of our strength, all of our might. We are to know that He is the Lord, serve the Lord and love the Lord with all of our mind. And applying verse 4, that we are to enter His gates with thanksgiving, we are to enter His courts with praise. We are loving the Lord with all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our spirit. All of our whole being is to to love the Lord, and we can do so by heeding these instructions that we have in this psalm, realizing that it is a response, once again, of love, of emotion, not a rigid response to, to truth, although there's a place for that. So we need to constantly be on guard against looking at the Bible as just a, a set of facts, a set of instructions that we are to do this, to check it off the list, uh, that can be a, a struggle for, for a lot of us, especially some who are, are kind of programmed and designed in that way that I want to get things done, right? I want to I check it off the list. I'm one of those types of people. I know several of you are right now. I see several of you smiling because I know you're those types of people too. And we can fall into that, that trap. Um, we need to realize that we are to lovingly respond to our God. We should heed the, the words of Jesus in Revelation, when he says those uh, heavy words 
those cringeworthy words to the church at Ephesus that you have lost your first love. That should cause us to pause. That should cause us to pray that God would help us not to fall into that same category, that we would constantly hold on to our, our first love for our Savior. We should follow Jesus' example to, to get alone and to praise God, to offer our thanksgiving of praise to Him. We have that great and wonderful resource of prayer that all too often we, we neglect to, to utilize and to take advantage of. Um, it would be good for us to, to focus on prayer. We, we proclaim the gospel. We prioritize prayer, right? In this life as we live for the next, that's one of our, our core values. But do we really do that? It, it looks great on the wall. We prioritize prayer. But is that a truth for us in our own life, in our own walk with Christ? Are we prioritizing prayer? And then lastly, we ought to acknowledge his godhood as we recognize our sonship, that we are his, that he himself, he is God, and we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Once again, Psalm 100 is a, a beautiful psalm, my, my favorite psalm. I would encourage you to, to take a look and, and read through Psalm 100 this week, maybe even write it down um, and meditate on the goodness of our God, the love that he showed us, and how we should respond to him in love. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you and you alone are God. There is no God besides you that you have taken on flesh to, to die for us, to rise again, that we might know you, we might have this great access to you through prayer. God, help us to shout joyfully to you. Help us to be absolutely set apart from the world, to be excited about who our God is, to respond to you in love, to live a life that is worthy of the calling that we've received. God, we are so unworthy and you are so majestic. God, we pray that you would help us to, to live these truths out and to do so in a way that honors you. Pray this in your name. Amen.